welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right, this week on More to Come, I have the great pleasure of talking with Ted Rawl, um, a, a graphic novelist, war correspondent, uh, syndicated cartoonist, essayist, former president of the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists. I could go on and on, and, and I'll probably add a few more things later, but in any event, uh, Ted, welcome to More to Come. Thanks for having me, Calvin. It's great to be here. All right, terrific. Um, uh, look, well, obviously, we're here today uh, to talk about your graphic bio of Snowden, uh, uh, a biography um, in comics of Ted Rawl, but actually a, a bit more than that. But... but Unsurprisingly, uh, there are there's more controversy around you, uh, and in particular, <laughs> you know, I don't look for these. Things. Yeah, I, 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 I well, I in this really case, don't. in particular, I'm not so sure about that. But in this particular case, it really does seem like you weren't looking for it. Um, you're a longtime editorial cartoonist for the LA Times, and they, as I read it, uh, they've jumped back to what 2001. Yeah. To trash um, uh, a report you did about the LAPD, which I can't imagine is exaggerated in any way, uh, and they fired you. I'm going to give it to you. Please give our, our listeners some background on what this is and what has transpired. Well, thanks, Calvin. I mean, what is what's going on is, uh, on one hand, it seems like a story about uh, a cartoonist being who did anti-police cartoons being pushed out of the L.A. Times as a favor for the LAPD, and that's true. But it's also, hmm. as as I describe this, I hope people will understand what it really is, is uh, a, 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 pro, a, a parable about creeping police state. Yeah. You're talking about... Uh, police control. Edit- police shouldn't have editorial control over a newspaper, but it appears that that's what's going on in, in L.A. Times due to a political deal between the publisher of the L.A. Times and the LAPD. So I'll explain. Um, mm-hmm. So the story goes back to 2001 uh, when I was uh, walking from a taping of Pil- Bill Maher, uh, Politically Incorrect, in L.A. Uh, to dinner with a bunch of friends and relatives. Uh, and it was about 8 o'clock at night, and I got stopped uh, for jaywalking mm-hmm. uh, across the street um, on Melrose Boulevard, if you are familiar with the West Hollywood section of L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I wasn't jaywalking. I'm a New Yorker. I, I jaywalk all the time. But I just <laughs> didn't happen to be jaywalking that one time. I think the guy had a quota to fill. In any event, yeah. he stopped me, accused me of jaywalking. I was extremely polite and compliant, which is, uh, you know, what the ACLU says you should do. And, sure. uh, you know, if I, I, it was unjust, but I figured I'd file my complaint later and I did. Uh, and I fought the ticket. Right. Uh, so that's the way to, to do this because the police are dangerous. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they are, they can kill you legally. So I, um, so I just decided to, um, so anyway, uh, the, the guy, um, even though I was polite, uh, grabbed me, threw me up against a wall didn't hurt me but you know it was rough and he handcuffed me and wrote me a ticket for jaywalking and as he did so he attracted quite a bit of attention this was an area back then that was kind of counterculturally and there were some punk rocker types hanging out and and people started gathering and giving the police officer a hard time and they were uh and then finally when the ticket was written he uncuffed me and he offered me my hand, my he pretended to offer me my driver's license back but instead of giving it to me he threw it on the ground uh-huh. and and left and 
I was furious, very upset. Sure. And I filed a complaint with the Department of Internal Affairs 10 days later. Now, studies have shown that Internal Affairs ignores 98 to 99% of all uh, complaints to LAPD. Mm-hmm. And uh, my case was no exception. Uh, they they didn't contact me. I never heard from them. Mm-hmm. And they, they claim to have tried to have contacted me, but I, I never heard from them. And, yeah. and anyway, that... That's where things stood. They dismissed my case without ever having heard from me. And so moving forward 14 years, uh, in May, LAPD announced that they were going to crack down on jaywalking again. So I wrote a blog to go, as I do every week, to explain my cartoon in the LA Times and Uh the story behind it. Uh, It's a very popular feature. A lot of cartoonists do it. Dave Horsey also does it in the Mm -hmm. LA Times. And uh, and so as part of it, I included three or four paragraphs about this incident, describing it just as I've just described it to you. Sure. And then uh, two and a half months passed, and in late July... Uh, Paul Pringle, a, an investigative reporter from the LA Times, called me to inform me that the LAPD was had uh, said that this never happened. And I said, well, what do you mean it didn't happen? I was never arrested for jaywalking. No, that happened, but it was a polite encounter. Uh, you were, <clears throat> he, it was a polite professional officer, and there was no crowd. There was no license thrown on the ground. There were no handcuffs. Uh, you were never pushed against a wall, and so on. Um, and so, and I said, well, of course they would say that. And then he said, well, they, they have proof. They have an audio, they, they, the officer made an audio tape of your arrest. And I was like, what? (laughs) Really? I was like, (laughs) really? I mean, I thought this whole taping thing was a brand new. Yeah, right. Yes. And so, you know, that's news to me, right? It's news actually to a lot of So they have body recorders in 2001? (laughs) Yeah, apparently they go back decades. And what's really interesting is that they were not required. They were voluntary. So in Mm -hmm. other words, the officers who did it obviously wore them in order to protect themselves, right? right? Not in order to protect uh, the the public, which is the idea of body cams now. So um, So anyway... Uh, the cop, the, uh, Mr. Pringle had me listen to the tape. Uh, he sent me not the original tape because they don't have the original tape. They just have a dub, mm-hmm. which we can get into because that's not, uh, actually considered evidence in, in anywhere. Any uh-huh. dub is not considered real sure. evidence. It mm-hmm. can't be, it's inadmissible in court and so on. But the, uh, they sent the, he sent me this dub, this digitized file of, uh, of a dub of a dub probably. And um, and so he had me listen to it, and it's a hot mess. I mean, you can go to my website, rawl.com, or to anewdomain.net, the tech mm-hmm. news website that I work for, and uh, listen to it. And all it is really is six minutes and 20 seconds that includes 20 seconds of the officer speaking at the beginning of the tape, followed by six minutes of static and noise. You just hear like... And they, and th- they, they consider this to be evidence of anything at all? Right. Well, that's that's what a journalistic mind would ask, right? I mean, I, <laughs> you and I have a journalistic mind, and I mean, to me, I'd say, look. So they said, well, this doesn't prove your story. I'm like, well, it's not my tape, so it doesn't have to prove my story. Yeah, right. It's their tape. But I was like, and they were like, well, it doesn't support your side. I'm like, no, it, it really doesn't. But it also doesn't support the officer's side either. I mean, if so the Pringle actually asked me several times. 
why don't we hear your license hitting the ground? What is he talking about? How would you hear a license hitting the ground? I said, I remember telling him, this isn't Steven Spielberg's boom mic, man. It's like <laughs> this, this is a, a, a crappy micro cassette from 2001 in an officer's uniform. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's crappy. Listen to it. And I remember just ask. I said, "This is a joke. This is an effing joke." I told him. And he's like, "No, it's not a joke." And he's like, "No, it's, it's." I'm like, "Yeah, it is a joke. It's a joke." And so, anyway, this was the tape that anyone can go listen to. And they, uh, so then shortly thereafter, I get a call from the editorial page editor, and this part's really interesting. He didn't know anything about it. In other words, he had not been brought into the uh -huh. loop until after Pringle had already called me. And that, that sort of is important, and I can get into that later. But after that, Pringle calls me back, um, and he has me listen to the tape again. And I'm just like, you know, basically, it was very clear that I was guilty until proven innocent in their minds. Yeah. And in less than 24 hours, they made the decision to fire me. Mm. Now, anyone who knows newspapers knows the editorial cartoonist reports to the editorial board. And if you fire the editorial cartoonist, uh, the deputy editorial page editors, the editorial page editor, the opinion pages editors, those are the people who get together and they decide what to do if, you're, if there's a, an alleged ethical breach. Uh, and uh, in most cases like this, the cartoonist would be, brought on, would be called on the carpet and, and grilled and asked questions and given an opportunity to explain himself. Or herself, and uh, in this case, that didn't happen. Uh, in fact, the editorial page editor himself, I think, was probably out of the loop. Um, yeah. I don't think he had anything to do with it, really. Yeah. I think this came from the publisher, Austin Butner, and I can explain why yeah. I think that's the case. But well, look, we're, I'm, we're, I'm, we're not going to be able to get too deeply into this, but I okay. do want you to investigate it and then bring us up to date of where does it stand now. I mean, uh, well, what what's, what's going on now is uh, I'm trying to. Um, so I'm, I'm going to about to file a records um, a records uh, request public records request with LAPD to find out every communication that took place between LAPD and LA and LA Times. But I should just parenthetically say just before we move on that uh, they fired me. Yeah. And yeah. I had the tape, and so I had the tape enhanced, like CSI style. Right. Yeah. And and then they came, and then the new tape, which you can also listen to at Raw.com has um it it's not still not any good it still sounds terrible but you've got more voices in the background and you can clearly hear a lady uh shouting at the officer take off his handcuffs three yeah. times in a row and so so clearly two important facts are there there's the presence of the angry crowd yeah uh, three or four people yelling at the cop there's like sexually loaded language yeah. between them and you and then there's also the uh and then clearly i was handcuffed yeah so those are important points that they said weren't true. Um, and so I contacted the Times about that, and they ignored me. And it's only after three weeks of media coverage in high-profile outlets like International Business Times yeah. and, uh, mm -hmm. and The Guardian uh, and, a, and, the, and a call by the AAEC, the Association sure. of American mm -hmm. Editorial Cartoons, for an investigation that they finally were feeling the heat, and they doubled down in another 2,500-word editor's note, uh, basically hanging me out to dry, uh, trying to destroy me uh, journalistically, I yeah. think it's safe to say. Um, and, uh, and, and anyway, so that's where things stand. Uh, the problem is the Times knows they screwed up. They, mm -hmm. they, had, a, they had a rush to judgment. Uh, they didn't do their due diligence. They didn't authenticate the tape. They didn't try to. Uh, they didn't listen to the tape very carefully. If they had, they would have heard this as exculpatory evidence. And 
the school of I, I think it's safe to say that the court of public opinion is is on my yeah side. I, I would have to be it's it's a, a pretty disturbing account how long have you you been an editorial cartoonist there uh, well, I've been syndicated since 1991. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you know the thing is, nobody's ever called my integrity or my veracity into question before. And uh, in fact, in my last call to Nick Goldberg, the editorial page editor, I sa- I asked him, has anyone in the 300 plus pieces I've ever done for you ever called my veracity or or into into question? And he said, no, they haven't. And I would think that uh, you know I'm given the immense doubt that existed because of that worthless tape, uh, that I should be entitled to that benefit given the fact that this would have been a first offense. I mean, just to put this into perspective, I'm not sure a lot of papers would have even fired me if it was true yeah, that I had I, lied about I, yeah. that. It's I mean, really disturbing. I mean, I've never, for uh, a any um, newspaper to turn on a uh, on its, one of its own journalists this way, uh, it's 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 this sort of startling and disturbing. <laughs> I, I don't it know how, how else to put it. No, I mean especially like when you consider the political agenda of the source here. I mean LAPD knew has been complaining about my work for years, and so finally you know they get a chance to to you know they, you get this tape from LAPD. If you're an editor, all your alarms have to be have to be ringing, and I think they kind of were. Yeah. And and I think that's why I think it came from the publisher. I think the publisher is not a journalist. He's a banker. Yeah. And uh, and so he just gave the order to 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 have me be gone. So where things stand now is, um, look, I would like a retraction. I'd like an apology. I want my three hundred dollar a week gig back. But that's not going to happen very yeah. clearly. So, um, you know, the, the next step is I'm trying to pursue legal action. Uh, and I, I'm going to, you know, I want to sue the Times and the LAPD. Uh, it's, it's proving complicated um, yeah, to try uh, to sure. find a try to find a lawyer who will work on a contingency on a case that could drag on for many years. And also uh, libel law is is tricky. I mean, these the L.A. Times threaded the needle very carefully with the way that they wrote their uh, their editor's note, uh, mm-hmm. which is obviously written by a lawyer, yeah. not by Nick Goldberg, and so even though he he put his byline on it, mm-hmm. so there's a kind of you know it's it's gonna I don't think it's gonna be impossible, and I really don't I don't have a choice I have to sue them, yeah, uh, but uh, and I if nothing else I know that I have to sue them because once I get them in discovery, uh, I'll be able to unravel this whole thing just by putting the principles under oath and they'll have to tell the truth about where they got the tape and what they know about it, what they know about the officer's record of internal affairs complaints and so on. They'll have to tell the truth and then, you know, then we'll, we'll know what's going on. But right now we're in this strange case where you have collusion between a, a police force and a newspaper that, is exactly the sort of thing that a newspaper ought to be investigating, <laughs> but there's yeah. no newspaper to do it. Yeah, uh, well, uh, very disturbing, and uh, obviously, uh, good luck to you on what's going to be obviously a very complex and difficult path to to deal with that. Um, I'm, Thank we, you. We're going to have to jump back to the book. Um, um, uh, uh, so we can talk a little bit more about uh, about Snowden. Uh, so if we can turn, <laughs> if we can suddenly change gears just a little bit. Sure. Um, uh, so, so 
obviously this has been uh, certainly one of the bombshell uh, whistleblowing acts uh, of our times in recent times. Um, Snowden is a graphic bio uh, published by uh, Seven Stories Press. I think did it just come out this month? Um, uh, yeah, just in fact, it came out last week, August uh, 25th. Um, uh, well, well, what I'd love for you to know, actually, is, is actually really to describe the book. I mean, while it is a biography of Ed Snowden, uh, it, it, it's more than that. It's also a, it also, it, it's a very handy description of the National Security Agency and what it does and how it does it, uh, as well as providing some interesting background on, on Snowden. So yeah, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about Snowden, uh, uh, the book. Sure. Well, um, yeah, no, that's ex- exactly right, Calvin. My idea was to try to write a book that would simplify a very complicated story uh, in almost in a, almost a YA way, mm-hmm. uh, and and that was my intent. Um, so, uh, first and foremost, I wanted to explain why Edward Snowden was important. Already, it's only been two years since he stepped forward, but there are already a lot of people and well informed, fairly well informed people who don't even really know who he is or exactly mm-hmm. what he revealed. So. First, I talked about uh, the NSA and the programs that he revealed. Uh, people don't know much about it. They, they, all the conversation in the p- political arena has been about the telephony metadata program. Mm-hmm. And what that means is the stuff that's on your phone bill, uh, who you called, who you, where you called from, mm-hmm. how long you talked, that kind of thing. Right. And, uh, and that's what President Obama has addressed and what, what Congress considered uh, making some changes to, but they didn't really do much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been the entire scope of the conversation. So uh, the government's been saying, "Well, that program doesn't record your calls. Uh, they don't listen to you. they don't listen to your calls." And that's true. They have another program that listens to your calls. <laughs> so, okay. So they have. So I describe that program in just a simple page, and then they say, "Well, that other program it record listens to your calls, but it doesn't record or store your calls." And that's true because they have another program that does that. Okay. So, so it goes on like that, and and then you know gets into uh, the programs that for, that do things that just frankly are freaky. Like uh, they can turn on your phone even when there's no power on it whatsoever, mm-hmm. and they can turn on your phone and listen and turn on the mic and the camera and hear and watch what's going on in, in the room. They can turn on your t- your computer camera even when the computer is off. And they actually uh, watch – they literally will watch you having sex and they will record that and they pass those tapes around each other because they're bored. Disturbing. Yeah, in fact, just for a second, I mean you mentioned some of these names like Blarney and Fairview and Mystic. Are these yes. the programs you're talking about? That's that's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Mm. Yeah, and they sound really – I mean they're kind of hilariously uh, – you know, the, 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 the man from UNCLE uh you know or get smart they're just kind of like ridiculous in a way um and but, but the these are is, various technological programs employed by the NS, NSA to do different kinds of surveillance right and to make it very simple for listeners now today uh basically every communication you can think of whether it's your text messages your voice over internet uh your your emails your phone calls uh, even streaming Netflix is all intercepted by NSA and stored and and kept for them. So yours, not like mm-hmm. terrorists, yours. Yes, yes. <laughs> so so like, and it's not maybe or probably. It's one hundred percent yours. Yes. So so um, this is what I think people need to understand, and it lays out those programs. And then I get into the two things that interest me the most about Snowden, which are why him. There's so few people who ever stepped forward out of mm-hmm. the 
over one million people who had access to all or some of this data uh, in, over the years. There was a guy named Tom Drake who did it yes. back in the mid-2000s. I interviewed him for the book. I want to uh, get into that because I do want to talk to you a little bit about uh, whistleblowers and their fate. But actually, what was Snowden's job? What did he do at um, the he NSA? Was a sy- he was a systems administrator. Mm-hmm. So he was the IT guy. In other mm-hmm. words, like, oh, my computer's uh, messing up. and I don't know what's going on. So you call him. And he fixes it for you. Uh-huh. So, so the IT guy comes in, and you know the IT guy needs your password. Mm-hmm, so, so he has access to everything. He has the overall systems administration passwords that allow him, rightly, to look at everything. But this is starting when he's 26 or 27 years old. He's got access to a broad swath of top-secret classified information, including live-time drone strike videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, classified um, these NSA programs like Blarney and Mystic that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything, just everything. Now, do all all uh, NSA um, system administrators have this? I mean, how many people have this kind of clearance uh, to go in and out of it's hard to say. I, don't, uh-huh. I, I certainly don't know how many, mm-hmm. uh, how many, how many people yeah. did. But when I talked to Drake, he said that uh, that he was uh, that uh, Snowden was one of a, a member of a privileged class. I see, mm-hmm. and was highly trusted, and was uh, part of an elite. So we'll just say that I think we can stipulate to the fact that he's an elite uh, mm-hmm. within the intelligence community, even though he only had a GED. And he only had he only had a couple of years of community college, but that didn't matter. He was just so damn smart and so damn good that they trusted mm-hmm. him. Now, before we go further, I do want to establish one thing: What is the NSA actually chartered to do, and how did they end up? Are they are they actually chartered to record every single electronic communication well, on the, the NSA, planet, or or, or no, including domestically? No, the NSA is specifically chartered only for foreign signals intelligence. Okay. Uh, they're only so now. Obviously, uh, the except the loophole for them is if uh, you know someone in the United States is communicating with someone overseas. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're allowed to listen to that because mm-hmm. half the conversation is overseas. Uh, but they're not supposed to deal with any strictly domestic communications whatsoever. And I think it was never believed for the first. Uh, 30 or 40 years of the agency's existence, that they should be engaged in wholesale vacuuming of all data. Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't possible back then. Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, and data storage was the main challenge. Um, the But now, with ser- servers have become relatively cheap, and they can build these data farms in places like Utah and elsewhere, so it is possible for them to gather everything. Basically, they view their job as searching for needles in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Ideally, it's the terrorist, uh, it's the terrorists and um, and and the potential bombers. But it's more than that. It's industrial espionage. It's uh, it's uh, going after uh, the enemies, uh, political enemies of our political allies overseas. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a lot of other stuff that's in the interest of the U.S. intelligence community, directly or indirectly. And these guys are very and, – and they view themselves as looking for needles in haystacks. And starting around in the late 1980s and throughout the 90s and certainly after 9-11, mm-hmm. they started coming up with an idea that they should collect the entire haystack so that they could look for the needle at their leisure whenever they wanted to. Now, was 9-11 a, a big turning point in terms it of their, their ability to brazenly uh, uh, move beyond – 
uh, it, it was the legal? USA the USA Patriot Act, mm-hmm. although it does not authorize these programs specifically, gave them a lot of legal cover, and also their budget increased strat- just by an exponential yeah. level after nine eleven. So so and and more to the point, the political space existed for them to do whatever the, whatever they wanted, and to have the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is supposed to provide oversight, just pre- you know just basically under Diane Feinstein. Just completely, just turn a blind yeah. eye to whatever they wanted to do. So, the, uh, th- but the origins of these programs really go back to the 1980s uh, and a program called Echelon, mm-hmm. when the goal was to intercept every fax, telex, phone, and analog phone call at the time uh, in the world. And they, they, they came close. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us a little background on, on uh, Ed Snowden. Um, where, where did he grow up and, and how did he end up working for the CIA? Sure. Well, it's a really interesting and weird story. Uh, <laughs> he, he, grew, he was born in South Carolina. And when he was young, when he, when he was a kid, his parents moved to Crofton, Maryland, which is in the suburbs, uh, just north of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. just five miles away from the NSA, uh-huh. in Fort Meade. And uh, everybody, I mean, you know, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and the major employer there is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. If you grew up in Crofton, the major employer was the NSA mm-hmm. and all of and, and NSA-related security contractors. The government does have a lot of mm-hmm. private companies now, that it just deals with. Is the, is the NSA part of the CIA or are they simply related agencies? It's a it's it's a it's more like a brother agency. Okay. They're not okay. Part of they're not part of each other. They're okay. all under the directorate of director of national intelligence, though. Right. And there's a bunch of other agencies that are intelligence agencies that nobody ever pays attention to. Like for example, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh-huh. which has a budget of billions and billions of dollars. And there's a maps there's a maps uh, uh, agency. There's depending on how you count between sixteen and twenty of these other intelligence agencies mm-hmm. within the U.S. government. Um, and But the NSA is the biggest, uh-huh. and it they pretty much don't get much oversight because people pay more attention to what the CIA is up to. Yeah. Um, so NSA, the joke is always no such agency. Their budget is, <laughs> their budget is off books. Yes, okay. Uh, they are allowed to – they don't get a lot of Senate oversight, uh, and they get away pretty much with whatever they want. And that's still true even post-Snowden. Mm-hmm. Uh, though certainly uh, Snowden's re- revelations has certainly thrown a spotlight on them, and at least some sense, uh, even among the ordinary, ordinary Americans, that something has gone wrong. I think that's right. I mean, a lot of people may not be paying attention, but a lot of people are. Yeah. And what's interesting is the the place that you'd expect action, uh, namely in Congress, there hasn't really been any. Yeah. But there has been some. You know, it's interesting. Snowden was a libertarian, is a libertarian, mm-hmm. and uh, he believes in free markets and the solution, market solutions. And and in some sense, this whole thing has kind of valid validated his uh, opinion about markets because. Uh, the l- private industry seems to be responding to the Snowden revelations with, uh, with by providing encryption to ordinary sure. Americans. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you buy an iPhone 6 or 6 Plus, 
that's encrypted point to point encryption snowden approved pg it's mm-hmm. it's the nsa it's you're dark to the nsa if you have an iphone 6 uh, if you get an app called Signal, for example, mm-hmm. uh, available on Android or iPhone, uh, that's point-to-point PGP-encrypted text messaging and phone calls. Uh, again, you are dark to NSA. Uh, in Europe and in other and in Asia in particular, American companies are losing tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars in business to uh, due to the privacy concerns that their companies are vulnerable to the NSA, and uh, they're refusing to have anything to do, for example, with the traditional cloud, which is run by Google, mm-hmm. and they're trying to build, for example, in Europe, a Euro cloud, they call it, an hmm. EU cloud, and uh, so that their European companies don't feel that they'll be vulnerable to industrial espionage. So, the, you know, the, the American people may think they're safe as long as they're not chatting with ISIS, right. but, but the rest <laughs> of the world doesn't trust the NSA, and a lot of Americans don't either, and I don't think you really... I don't think you have to be doing anything wrong to have the NSA, to have government surveillance be bad for you. Yeah. Well, we can talk a little bit more a little bit later about the the, the nature of privacy. I know there's sort of an, an American uh, notion that, well, if you're not doing anything bad, what do you have to talk about? But this is, uh, this is a crazy violation of simply the notion of existential, you know, seclusion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I yes, mean, it's always – I mean, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, um, he has a funny shtick whenever someone asks him in a, in a talk uh, you know, about this exact point. Well, if I have nothing to worry about, uh, you know, if I don't do anything wrong, why should I worry about people watching me? And he says, okay, may I please have your, your username and password for your email account? Yeah. <laughs> and then no one ever takes him yeah. up on that, right? And, yeah. and it's like, well, uh, you know, that's – that's why. I mean, you know, you shower with your windows shut, right? With your curtains <laughs> that's, that's, drawn. Yes. Uh, you know, you sleep You sleep with the curtains drawn. Uh, does it mean you're doing anything wrong in your bedroom? Probably not. But you, you, there, it, people need a space to be Absolutely. private. And it's not just existential, although I think it is existential. It's, frankly, it's legal. Yeah. Uh, these, oh, absolutely. these programs violate American law. There's yeah. no question about yeah. it. Uh, back to Snowden for a second. There's some interesting part uh, in, in, in your book uh, where you're talking about his background and, and the sense of how it perhaps influenced um, his actions later on in life. And, uh, um, and since we, this is a, 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 a comics and pop culture uh, podcast, I was very curious to hear about his background as a, kind of an American otaku, as a, a video game player uh, and a fan of anime and manga. Yeah, no, I was fascinated by that too. Um, so he was, um, so he was a, a definitely had an interesting upbringing. Um, thing, he was an ordinary kind of conservative right wing kid until th- some weird things started to happen. So uh, when he was sixteen, he contracted mono and had to, and was forced to drop out of school because he couldn't attend. He ended up having to finish as a GED student, mm-hmm. um, and then. He ended up getting a job. He decided to go as a 16-year-old to the local community college. He worked there a little bit, um, and while he was there, he was very interested in, in gaming and in anime. Uh, he founded a um, a website called uh, Ruknama Press, mm-hmm. which uh, v- reviewed anime and video games. Uh, he was very active on Ars Technica discussion mm-hmm. group discussion boards although he will neither confirm nor deny that that's him on our side i see mm-hmm. um and he um he uh I, I you know i mean it's he 
bristles at the at the suggestion that his video gaming affected his uh, you know his sense of morality or right and wrong. I don't know why. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was punk rock, and it's yeah. it's still a huge influence on mm-hmm. the way I think about mm-hmm. things. And I don't know why. I th- it's hard to believe anyone who would uh, be a gamer and not be affected by that. Uh, uh, you know, and, I have neglected to ask you: Have you interviewed him directly? No, I mm-hmm. haven't been able to. He, mm-hmm. I wanted this to be an authorized biography, mm-hmm. and he refused. And I don't know why. If it was because he was uh, because he was. Uh, working on his own book, perhaps, or yeah. whatever. But what's interesting is that once it was done, uh, my publisher sent it to him via his uh, via Ben Wisner, his ACLU lawyer. And so we, ke- we got back a bunch of edits and changes and corrections uh, via Wisner from Snowden. Uh-huh. And, and so that's, you know, it kind of ends up being the best of bad. both worlds. Yeah. No, it's the best of both worlds, really, yeah. because I had the independence to address some of the criticisms mm-hmm. of him within the book uh, that I might not have been able to do with an authorized biography. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then at the same time, I was able to uh, fix the mistakes that I was picking up from some of the mm-hmm. reports I, I was picking up from mainstream outlets that were reporting in a mad hurry in two, the summer of 2013. Mm-hmm. They got a lot of things wrong, but surprising, mm-hmm. not surprising. Um, so he's so he obviously... Yeah, excuse me, go on. Well, so the way he ended up working for NSA, you asked me about the way he wor- ended up at yes. CIA, mm-hmm. and it was an accident. He ended up um, for at a place called Castle, or the Center for Advanced uh, Something of Language, uh, Study yeah, of Language. It that's it. It. Center for the Advanced it, Study of Language. And this is about 2005, right? That's 2005. And he ended up, he was he, he checked your ID at the door. He was a security guard. Right. Guy. So this is really true. He was a, he started as a security guard and then rose to really have a top-level security clearance. Within really just a few years, he yeah. was already, uh, yeah, he was within, he was in Geneva, uh, at, posted in CIA. Uh, and yeah, it's pretty kind of remarkable. He bounced around with between CIA, NSA, uh, contractors and subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's, they are all kind of intermingled um, entities. So, but he started out as the security guard, and uh, this this uh, this is the, the castle is an NSA front. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where he started, and uh, and obviously they recognized that he was smart and into computers, and so they. They, they took advantage of that, and they gave him the opportunities. I mean, actually, I have to give the government credit for, for being willing to promote someone with an unorthodox uh-huh. uh, educational background. That's not always true in a lot of American companies. Um, and so, anyway, they, they, they did that. And so, by the time uh, he started to change his mind about things... Um, around the time that Obama was elected. Mm-hmm. Um, for him, Obama had, was a betrayal. He was a libertarian. He supported Ron Paul. He wouldn't have voted for Obama and didn't. Mm-hmm. But he trusted Obama when he said that he was going to put an end to NSA surveillance against Americans. And uh, when Obama came in, he didn't and, in yeah. fact, expanded the NSA mm-hmm. uh, programs. And so he was really angry. And mm-hmm. he decided that he was going to uh, become a whistleblower, and around 2011, he decided to start to try to f- get into a position to be able to collect an, as much data as possible. Mm. And uh, you mentioned in the book that you mentioned in the book that uh, an assignment to Europe uh, was another factor, possibly in broadening yeah. his view of uh, the America, uh, American culture, and political culture around the world. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, he'll, Snowden will tell you that that there's no one single moment that that marks everything. But the closest that seems to come to it is this incident while he was stationed at the CIA uh, uh, branch of the uh, U.S. Embassy in Geneva. Uh, and at that time, first of all, he got to mingle with a lot of foreigners for the first time in his life. Mm-hmm. And that's always a big, ex- you know, that's a, sure, for Americans, that's a, that's a, it's a big experience. Yeah, yeah. You suddenly realize like, wow, there's a big world out there and America isn't everything. Yeah. Um, and there's different ways of looking at things. And uh, so he was a kind of insular kid. And this was a probably blew his mind. And then he saw kind of he witnessed or heard about, I should say, a very sort of standard example of American spycraft, uh, where these CIA guys were trying to get access to a bank account, a Swiss bank account, and and they couldn't. And so what they decided to do is compromise the banker in charge of that account. Uh, they took him out drinking, got him drunk, mm-hmm. and then had him arrested for DUI, and then quote unquote rescued him from the arrest so that he would owe them. Yeah. And so he coughed up the information. If you read Len Dayton or Frederick Forsyth, you're not going to say that's like a big deal. Right. But the thing is, but but it really appalled him, and it offended Edward's sense of fair play. Uh, he thought it was dirty uh-huh. and nasty, and um, and it made him think that the U.S. government wasn't always on the side of the angels. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, at what point? So, oh, well, actually, you mentioned the point. You saying around 2011. He made a conscious effort that he was going to find evidence and expose uh, what the NSA was doing. Yeah, I mean, he knew what the NSA was doing. He was uh, he could see it on his screen. Yeah. But he wanted to get the he wanted to download the documents. Yeah. So how did he do it? Well, he he's cagey about that, but it seems pretty clear that he used thumb drives. <laughs> thumb uh, drives. So, I mean, a pretty simple way to do it. Yeah, apparently they weren't very careful <laughs> I mean, about this. I mean, this is what sort of was, was shocking in some ways, of the ease with which he was able to do this. Well, I mean, that's the thing about digital data is that it just moves very quickly and mm-hmm. very efficiently. And it uses the same kinds of – you know, it's not like the government – buy special computers you know they they, they, they the buy same computers dells. everybody else has <laughs> yeah they buy dells and they you know they buy they, they buy apples i mean they just get what we have so the thing is that it, it there should have been some system on those government computers that would reveal the copying to thumb drives but there wasn't mm-hmm. there might not even be now but there, there might be but there, yeah. there certainly wasn't at the time so he downloaded Tens of thousands of classified documents uh, over the over the, you know the next eighteen months, and uh, with a view towards collecting a huge trove that he planned, that he wanted to find a good independent, uh, principled reporter to turn it over to who could be trusted and wouldn't be compromised by the U.S. government. Now, where was he as, when he started to to download these files? Where was he by then? Uh, well, by then he was in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Um, that was his last assignment before he fled to Hong Kong. Before he split. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Yeah, so he was. He was gone. Uh, so he. Yeah, he spent. It must have been a really tough eighteen months because you know here he is. He's living with his girlfriend, who he clearly loves, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I mean, he's with her again now. Uh, he. This was a serious relationship, uh, and you know he could. He's like there every day. Uh, you know. T- trying to get Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras to uh, to install a PGP key so he can talk to them mm-hmm. and 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 set up a drop, and at the same time, and he's stealing information from the feds, and at the same time, he's uh, you know he can't tell a word to his girlfriend or his friends or his family yeah. 
And then when he disappears, he still can't tell them anything. And they're going to hear all these terrible things about how he's a traitor. Uh, he's a foreign agent for Russia or China. And he can't talk to them because if he does, he compromises them and, yeah. and they could, could go to prison. Um, so, I mean, it's very interesting in, in the in the comic, in the comic bio. I mean, you, I mean, you you lead us into this and then he's he essentially walks out on his life, gets in a cab and and disappears. That's right. He just goes straight to the airport uh, in Honolulu and, and disappears for weeks at a time. He's in Honolulu. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. He's in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Secretly, mm -hmm. um, running up his credit card, you know, staying at an expensive hotel and, uh, and, and waiting for Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras to get it together to come meet him. And, uh, you know, so that they can trust him and stuff. And it, it's just uh, so there he was, you know, throughout the month of May 2013. And uh, and finally, uh, you know, the, the, as we know, uh, history played out. Greenwald and Poitras and uh, an editor from The Guardian showed up. And there was uh, this Edward is what, Asprey. June of 2013. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, and there was Edward stand uh, <laughs> waiting for them as prearranged playing with a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, his nerd credentials are in order. Um, uh, well, well, here's a key question. To I mean, everyone, you know, obviously critics on the right say, "Oh, well, why did he flee?" You know, uh, and this also connects with the whistleblower question I had earlier. Um, why did he flee? Why did he feel the need to split? Why didn't he sort of release it and stay in the states and you know? And sort of face uh, face the consequences as a whistleblower with right on his side. Well, I mean, listeners of a certain age will remember the great show trials of the '60s, mm -hmm. like the Chicago Seven, sure, and stuff like that. I'm of that um, age, <laughs> and, uh, and I've I've read about it, um, <laughs> almost of that age. And uh, you know, and those those trials don't happen anymore, yeah, uh, due to the State Privileges uh, Act. So. Essentially, um, he, what what he what Snowden Snowden has a lot of faith in the system. He he really does, mm -hmm. and I think his instinct is would have been to do that. But he's he's a very methodical guy, and which is you know why the U.S. has never laid their hands on him. Yeah, uh, and he he thought about it and did some research, and he looked at what happened to previous whistleblowers like Daniel Ellsberg with the mm -hmm. Pentagon Papers in the early 1970s, uh, and then. Uh, Chelsea Manning and Julian yes. Assange mm -hmm. uh, of WikiLeaks, um, and and Thomas Drake was very important to him. He mm -hmm. was an Who early you, NSA. you interview in in the book. That's right. Yeah, and um, and so with all of those, uh, in all of those cases, you know, the U.S. always talks a good game about how they're open to whistleblowers. But the practical reality is you can't point to a single one who was ever welcomed with open arms. Yeah. Uh, what they always do is they ruthlessly crush you and try to throw you in prison. I mean, with Ellsberg, mm -hmm. Nixon had, had scumbags break into, his, into yeah. his psychiatrist's office and reveal all of his shrink records uh, with a view towards smearing him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chelsea Manning is uh, in prison for 35 years yeah. uh, for when she should be getting a ticker tape parade down Broadway. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Julian Assange is facing what looked to be trumped-up charges uh, and is stuck in the a tiny little mm -hmm. embassy in London, uh, the Ecuadorian embassy. So... You know, I mean, it's, it's one hell of a thing when you live in an age when your greatest people 
like uh, like Greenwald and Poitras are afraid to come. You know, Greenwald yeah. and Poitras are both Americans, but they're yeah. afraid to come here. They do come here from time to time, mm-hmm. but they're afraid. And Poitras has been repeatedly harassed by Homeland Security every time she comes in and out of the airport. Mm-hmm. So it's a, um, you know, he looked at all that and he said, look, if I come back, they're not going to put me, they're not going to give me a chance to explain why I did what I did or to talk about the programs because they're all classified. Right. So those will, I can't even talk about those. The only thing they'll talk about is that I stole them sure. and that I'm going to, and that mm-hmm. I broke the law and I should go to prison. So he knew that by, by look at Chelsea Manning. Yeah. She's out of the picture. She's all but forgotten. Yeah. And if she were out and about, she'd be able to give interviews. She'd be able mm-hmm. to be on Skype. Um, we'd be able to talk to her. She'd be part of the re- the public record, but instead she's just she's just been disappeared like in a Soviet gulag. Yeah. So I think the same thing is true. Um, so so he didn't want that to happen. He realized sure. that he. I mean, of course, you could say it's self-serving, but he also realized that that while he's out able to give speeches and talks and receive mm-hmm. awards, that he could keep the issue alive. He also wanted there to be a drip drip effect. Um, which, uh, you know, Julian Assange, I think, kind of made this tactical mistake by releasing the WikiLeaks data dump all at once Mm -hmm. so that it became one giant news story. Media organizations sort of sifted through it in a mad rush, Mm -hmm. uh, all this data, picked out a few things that they thought were interesting and ignored the rest and moved on when when other news stories broke. But what they really needed to do uh, should have been to uh, release them a little bit at a time. And Greenwald agreed to do that and with the NSA leaks, the Snowden leaks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was part of his, his tactic. And uh-huh. I think that's why he didn't want to come back. But, um, you know, he, he certainly would love to come home. There's no question about that. Uh, well, I mean, it's he, he he's clearly taken, a, you know, in my view, a, a, a heroic path. Um, what, what it's, you know, I, I, doubt, I doubt if I would have had the balls to do what he's done. I mean, he's be, uh, essentially become sort of stateless. Didn't, didn't he spend months at a time basically trapped in diplomatic limbo in an airport? Yeah, that's right. He was stuck in one of, in one of my least favorite airports in the world. Uh, if ever, anyone ever saw that Steven Spielberg movie, uh, where, Tom Hanks is stuck oh, right. in no man's land. It's kind of like that, except uh, that, I think that was at the at the Paris airport where the real story happened, which mm-hmm. isn't so bad. There's a good food in, at the at <laughs> well, Charles it's Paris, Paul. yeah. <laughs> but Sherma but Shermativo too is not a fun airport. Uh, he was stuck in a in a conference room with um, a uh, with with uh, I think her first name is Susan Harrison, but she was a uh, WikiLeaks lawyer. Sarah Harrison, mm-hmm. um, and she and they were stuck in that, you know, washing their underwear in, in like the bathroom sink for God knows how long, probably four to six weeks, before finally the Russian government issued asylum papers, so that they could, so that he could go out into the world, uh, you know. So that's a long time to go without a real shower, you yeah. know. And um, yeah, he was he was, you know, he was in the on on a plane between Hong Kong and Moscow. When then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton turned off his passport, hmm. I didn't even know they could do that. They just, I thought you had a passport. Just killed it, passport. yeah. Yeah, I didn't know it was like this electronic thing where they could just like block you. 
I mean, it kind of it's really gross. I think I don't think they should even. I don't even think they should be allowed to do that. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like turning off your existence. <laughs> it's like it's like that movie, Enemy of the State, which yeah. uh, is actually just excellent. It was it was great at the hmm. time, but it's aged even better. It's on Netflix now. Everyone should watch it. Yeah. Um, so, well, uh, 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 well, really, Stoughton is a really, uh, as you put it, is really a um, a clear. I mean, I've been following uh, the Snowden account, but I can't claim myself to have really waded through, you know, uh, uh, most of the, the the news pieces about him. This is really a way to to get a grasp on the on the the basis text, and in some ways, get uh, a different view of him uh, than perhaps uh, you're going to read in the uh, mainstream media. Yeah, that's 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 my goal. Uh, you know, it's like if you don't, if you feel like, oh, Snowden thing, oh, it's so much work. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, you can read this thing in one sitting, no yeah. problem, and and you'll be up to speed pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you'll you, you, and it's and anyone should be able mm-hmm. to to get it. Just a question about your uh, your approach. I mean, uh, it's a little different from some of your other comics. I mean, you do a variety of things, including uh, you know, prose, nonfiction, but yeah, it, it's essentially. Uh, Rather than a multiple panel page that most comics people would arrest, it's really a page by page, um, sequential page. Yeah, I mean, each page is kind of its own panel. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because it's small, it's like mm-hmm. I, I think it's five by seven inches, mm-hmm. uh, and and so it, yeah, it's like that. And it's also just you know, it, this is definitely the first time I've ever taken a stab at a straight biography. Um, and I wouldn't do it if the figure involved wasn't really interesting, Mm -hmm. um, and didn't have something to say politically. I mean, you know, he's, look, the guy, he had a remarkable political transformation. He's not a lefty, you know, by any, by any means, but he's certainly had a political awakening, uh, from what he saw and he's changed. And, you know, I mean, breaking, going from being a guy who volunteered to serve in Iraq, uh, to fight Saddam to uh, that an NSA whistleblower in just eight short years is an amazing transformation. I mean, uh, it you know it's, of course he was in his twenties and that's when people make changes. But yeah, but, uh, you know but he, he's an interesting. Change. He's a really interesting character. Yeah, no, w- without a doubt. Um, look, we're, we're we're running out of time here. I do want to uh, uh, you know I, I do want to give our uh, listeners uh, who may not be familiar with your work just a, a better sense of your background. I mean, you've published. I mean, you've published, uh, you, you've written, co-edited, um, co-authored. It's got to be more than twenty books, am I right? I think this one's number twenty. Actually. Is it okay? I you mean, have a very, yeah, you're you're good. My well, I you know I did my research here. Uh, besides which, I mean, I, I I think my one of my first encounters with your work was your was your your um uh, your autobiography. Uh, I guess you would call it the My War with Brian. Uh, I think right. to this day, certainly one of the most extraordinary. Um, autobiographies, I think, and certainly one of the earliest uh, looks at, at bullying that I think I ever read. Uh, it's still an, um, an extraordinary book that is sort of shocking in the indifference of the adults around you at the time to what was happening to you. It's kind of funny when you think about like the fact that it was 1996 and that nobody had really done a comic book about bullying. Yeah. I mean, when you just think about comics, you know, comics are... You just imagine that someone, someone who was a cartoonist, had been bullied. I, I bet all of them. I'll bet yes, before cartoonists, <laughs> so like, yeah. And none of them drew it. It's yeah, like it's really kind of amazing to me that it had. Yeah. Um, 
the the next I think the next book that leaps out of me is uh, to Afghanistan and back. Once again, for me, I mean, I was familiar with Joe Sacco at the time. Um, I'm not I'm not quite sure of his first the, when his first books were published, but uh, there were a small number of cartoonists that considered themselves war correspondents. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think Joe's first book was A Safe Area Garage, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that's like 1993 or 1994, maybe. Um, There were not – I mean, I I guess you could count the Willie and Joe comics. uh, Oh, yeah, yes. And that should be clear. I I mean, I'm not talking – obviously, people were – you know, there were cartoonists. uh, And there was – and Will Eisner did some stuff. Yes, exactly. And um, the Willie and Joe – and I'm I'm embarrassed because I'm forgetting the – the, the great um, editorial cartoonist uh, that went to war, um, but who did those Willie and Joe cartoons? And I'm, I'm, the, the name. Yeah, Bill uh, Malden. Bill, Bill Malden. Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, my apologies. And he, to... he came back and, and he was an amazing editorial. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But his his cartoons from the war were really extraordinary. Uh, but to, to Afghanistan and back was for me at that time was really uh, really extraordinary book. And you've been back again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, uh, yeah, I went back with two other cartoonists, uh, Stephen Cloud and Matt Boris, in 2011. And uh, the result for me was a book called After We Kill You, We Will Welcome You Back as Honored Guests. And uh, for Farrar Strauss, or sorry, Hill and Wang, which is part of Farrar Strauss. Yeah, which Strauss. is part of her show. Um, and they were, um, and yeah, and, and it was a, that was a, a really cool project because it was an opportunity to kind of see how Afghanistan had changed in 10 years. Uh, and you know what had gotten better, what had gotten worse, um, and what had stayed the same. Uh, and so we went to you know as usual, as is my way. As we stayed with local people, stayed in yeah. local. Yes, hotels. You were not embedded with a military unit in no, this particular I mean, instance. Com- yeah. By the way, that you know, I mean, I will say uh, to be transparent here, I I really don't think any reporter should be yeah. embedded. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually, uh, I think it's a huge threat. To, I think journalists get killed. I don't think uh, like ISIS would be beheading journalists if not for the embedding program. The embedding yeah. program has removed the uh, has removed the protected status of, of journalists. Uh, it makes us fair game for being killed. Uh, and uh, but so but that said, those stories are covered. You know, I mean, the soldiers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's there is embedding. Uh, if you want to know, uh, if you want to read. Uh, co- uh, good coverage of what it looks like to be a U.S. soldier in Afghanistan or Iraq, you can. And mm-hmm. what's really missing is the stories of the people under occupation. Uh, and and uh, people are afraid. You know, mm-hmm. reporters are afraid. I actually think it's safer to be to travel independently anyway, uh, because people will owe you and give you hospitality. And uh, and I think when you travel with the troops, you're a target for IEDs anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's just a win-win to yeah. travel independently. Okay, now as we wind up here, uh, I do want to very quickly uh, ask you about um, the Snowden is clearly not the last kind of book you're going to do because you've 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 just uh, announced a new book that you're going to be doing, a new graphic bio that you're also going to be doing with Seven Stories Press, uh, um, a graphic bio of Bernie Sanders. That's right. Uh, Senator Sanders uh, has graciously agreed to be interviewed for this book. Great. Uh, but if it's all, but uh, kind of like with Snowden, it's it's mostly written, and I'm looking to ask the uh, senator for some, uh, just to fill in the gaps. But that but that book comes out in December before the first before the Iowa caucuses, and uh, here he's his is a completely different story. Yeah. Uh, mm. Than than uh, this is a man who worked completely within the system. But ironically, uh, his political moment seems to be shaped 
by the mere fact that he has been ridiculed and marginalized within the system as that weird socialist from Vermont mm. uh, for so many years that now when there's a hunger within the Demo- within the liberal wing of the Democratic Party for a real progressive voice, um, you know, to the left of Hillary Clinton, uh, here he's able to step in and and fill that with an authenticity that's lacking from someone like perhaps like a Joe Biden, yeah, uh, or or maybe even a Martin O'Malley. Um, I mean, I don't know what Martin O'Malley is thinking, honestly. <laughs> Post Baltimore mayor, yeah. <laughs> uh, like yeah. what? Good point. Yeah. Um, uh, well, look. Well, obviously, we'll be waiting uh, to see that book as well. And I, I think on that note, we're going to have to wind this down. Um, look, it's always great to talk to you, Ted. And thank you okay. so much for being on More to Come. Thank you so much, Calvin. It's great to be here. Fabulous. All right. Terrific. I got my interview. Great. Ted, Yay. look, thanks much. Uh, appreciate it. Love the book. And, Thank you. Um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and good luck to you on the L- on the uh, LA Times things, man. I, oh, my wow. God. 